From Alaska Teen Media Institute, this is Podcast in Place, Youth Stories from Quarantine, a series about youth in Alaska during the COVID-19 pandemic. We're bringing you stories, interviews, and audio diaries from teenagers and young adults stuck at home with nothing better to do. I'm Amy, senior producer and media production mentor, Sam Burnitz, recording this on my iPhone in my parents' basement since the Atme studio is closed for the time being. It's been a rough year for education. Students, teachers, and parents have all had to make the shift to online schooling during a pandemic. This summer, the Anchorage School District announced that it was going to be bringing students back for in-person learning, only to subsequently reverse the decision due to rising coronavirus cases. Then in September, it was announced that students would be returning in October, but that didn't happen either. Recently, they had planned on bringing back preschool through second grade, as well as some special education programs back into classrooms starting November 16th, but reversed course yet again. In order to better understand this saga, on today's episode, we'll be talking with Marty Lang, a director of secondary education for ASD who supervises the high schools. Atme senior producer Quinn White spoke with him about the ever-changing plans to bring kids back into schools, balancing different risk factors, precautions they're taking to ensure safety, and much more. They spoke on October 21st when ASD was still planning on bringing younger students back. How has your job changed due to the coronavirus pandemic? Uh, it has really uh, focused, I think, a lot um, our day-to-day responsibilities just on figuring out how to maintain school um, in a virtual environment, um, which is kind of ever-shifting and changing. Um, we spent a lot of time planning for kind of what's next if we were to come back in person to the building. Um, And at the high school level, um, it has really changed. Um, I've I've always been responsible for helping oversee the athletic program for the district, so our sports and activities, Um, but we've had to figure out how to do that with a lot of mitigation plans in place. And so it's really kind of shifted the conversation around sports. And so those have become really the things that I do full-time on a day-to-day basis, almost every day, all day now, Um, Whereas before, you know, there were a lot of other things that I did that were kind of tied to what happens in a school on a day-to-day basis, but without kids in schools, a lot of those things just aren't happening. That makes a lot of sense. In July, I spoke with Joe Zawadney, and at the time, they were planning on bringing back kids to school in August, but obviously that didn't happen, and a lot has changed since then. So can you tell me about ASD's current reopening plans and um, how they've changed and what they currently are? Yeah, so um, it's an ever-evolving landscape, and um, I have learned not to make predictions about what's going to happen months from now, um, because you know even a week or two can change um, our planning process significantly. So in July, we were hoping to open school um, in person at least part of the week. Um, The numbers escalated in the community. We moved to a high-risk status, and so we shifted to fully online learning. Um, 
the numbers had stayed pretty high. You know, we went into our four-week uh, reset under the, the mayor's orders. That brought numbers down. Um, we started to get kind of more optimistic that that would open up a window sometime this semester for bringing folks back and started planning a little bit that direction. Uh, but numbers have, have really kind of turned the other way now again. And so um, a lot of the conversation um, at the district level is more at, at the kind of superintendent's level. So a few um, levels above mine, but we have been tasked with starting the planning for middle school and high school coming back potentially face-to-face -face in January. So there's an elementary department as well that's kind of working on the plans for bringing back uh, you know, pre-K, kindergarten, and first and second grade earlier. Uh, but for middle and high school, we've pretty much established that we're going to be online through the end of the semester. And then I've been meeting with principals um, this week. And Joe, who, who oversees our middle schools, has been meeting with the middle school principals for a couple weeks now, really starting to talk about what would we need to have in place um, in order to bring uh, kids back to the buildings um, in January at the secondary level. So what are some of the concerns you have about reopening? Well, I think they are the concerns that most people share. And that is, um, is it safe? You know, is it, um, uh, are we going to see a lot of folks come to um, the buildings potentially positive and not know that they're positive? They're in their infectious period, but they haven't uh, developed symptoms yet. So they may not know to get tested or to stay home. Um, and then possibly, you know, transmit that to others. Um, I think that's the, the chief concern on everyone's mind. Um, we have, through our sports programs, though, learned that with mitigation plans in place, we can lower that risk significantly enough that we have, have at least in our sports programs, we've had little or no secondary transmissions yet. So we've had a lot of people... Um, get positive, turn you know, test positive for COVID, but not transmit that to other people in our sports programs. Our hope is that when we come back to the buildings, we can put mitigation efforts in place to keep people safe. The other thing is just how do you do school, right, um, in a thoughtful way under those mitigation plans? Like how do we got we've got to figure out like how to do passing times. Um, do we do a, a lunch period during the day, or do we push that to the end of the day? Um, how do we space kids far enough apart in classes? How do we reduce class sizes enough that we have space between students and classrooms? You know, all the guidance we're getting from the health department really suggests that kids, you know, need to be, you know, six feet apart whenever possible, even when masked. And so with the physical geography in the classroom, how do we rearrange things so that we can try to maintain that distance and still provide an education? So I think those are the things that are on everybody's mind right now and that we're working to try to solve. What is the reasoning behind bringing different levels back to school at different times and why bring pre-K through second grade back first? You know, there's, there's a couple of reasons and, and I'm not a medical expert. I'm gonna cite some things that I have heard my medical friends say, so, um, but don't, don't um, you know, take them as the gospel truth. One thing I understand about students who are um, younger than nine years old is they are less likely uh, to contract COVID and they are less likely to transmit it to others. Um, once you get above nine years old, um, you know, high school age kids really um, have a lot of the similar um, contracting and dissemination rates that adults do, right? So we know that younger kids are um, not as good at spreading COVID. 
But that's not the primary reason why we're looking to bring those younger kids back first. When I hear our superintendent talk, you know, she's really trying to balance risks, right? So there's a risk to kids coming back to school. There's a risk to the adults in the building who'll be interacting with those kids potentially, you know, our teachers, our principals, our front office staff, our, our bus drivers, right? So we're, 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 we're creating some risk in bringing kids back. But there are some risks to not bringing those younger kids back. It is incredibly difficult for them to learn online. They're just not independent learners. And so it requires an adult in their world to really be able to set up and make sure that they're you know, on Zoom when their teacher is, is hosting a synchronous lesson, that they're you know, completing any assignments that are being assigned. They can't read instructions themselves at that point. And probably the biggest factor, I think, is that they're in a developmental window where they're learning how to read. And if they miss that window, it has huge implications for them, you know, in future years for their education. And so we have to weigh the risk of COVID against the risk of students, a large percentage of our students who, who may not have really good support at home, not learning how to read and missing that critical window when we know our brain is sort of wired to absorb that information and develop that skill. And so, you know, it's, it's really at this point having to figure out which is the greater risk and, and, and can we mitigate for some of the COVID risks so that we can bring kids back and reduce the risk of kids not being able to read by third grade, which most research and studies say is a real good determiner of whether or not a student is going to be successful, um, you know, in future years and be able to graduate on time. There's a real concern, you know, that kids just aren't getting what they need at home. And we know as schools, we can provide that. You know, schools don't just provide education either. You know, for a lot of um, lower income students in the Anchorage municipality, schools provide food, they provide some medical care services, um, they provide after school care. Um, so there's a lot of things that are baked into a school that when kids can't access those um, are pretty difficult to provide and, and have an impact. And so uh, we want to get kids back in school where we can. So there's a lot of push right now to reopen in-person schools, but cases are higher than ever in Alaska. It really seems like this is the most unsafe time to go back to school. So how do you balance these factors? Yeah, that is a great question too. You know, we've 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 learned more since March, right? We're you know, the our health healthcare officials, the health department who, who advises us as a district a lot. They've learned a lot too in in how to manage and advise and and provide guidance in in the midst of a you know a pandemic like we've never seen before. We have gotten more sophisticated in what we look at, you know, for a long time through March and then into the summer and even early fall, we were looking primarily just at case rates. And if you go to the district dashboard now, you'll see that we're looking at case rates. We're looking at the percentage of people who are testing positive. We're monitoring our hospitals to see, you know, how full our ICU wards are, how many beds are still available. We're looking at our ability to provide mitigation plans, to sanitize. You know, there's, there's a, I think about 12 different factors that we're looking at now to help us make kind of a decision, but it's still at the end of the day, a subjective decision. You know, you don't plug all that information into a computer and it spits out it's safe or it's unsafe. It's still, you know, a judgment call 
Um, and it's a difficult call because like I said before, we're, we're weighing risks against each other, right? What's the risk of coming back to school in terms of potentially um, increasing the amount of transmission in our community of COVID-19? And what's the risk if we don't bring kids back? And what's the impact to families who are having to provide you know, daycare um, and you know, endure extra expenses, there's an ongoing economic impact of not operating schools too. So we're trying to balance all those things. You know, I've been in some conversations um, at the state level recently with uh, Dr. Ann Zink, and she had just gotten off a call with the White House um, with Dr. Fauci's team about a week and a half ago when she joined a conversation at the state level around sports. And so she was saying, you know, what she's hearing at the national level and what she's seeing at the state level makes her kind of talk out of both sides of her mouth right now. And she admitted that. She said she is the next couple of months are probably going to be the worst that we've seen in Anchorage and on Alaska period since March. Right. Things are not going well right now. They're probably going to get worse for a period of time. But come January, she really sees out on the horizon that things are going to start getting better that you know we're going to start seeing some vaccines become available for our essential workers for healthcare folks for law enforcement and they're probably going to include educators in some of those high needs initial groups and so she said you know for a period of time it's going to get it worse and then it's going to start getting better and so we all need to start planning and preparing for how do we get back to some sense of normalcy whatever new normal is going to look like post covid because um, it's not that far out on the horizon. And so that's where a lot of our efforts are right now. And we don't want to get ahead of things, right? We don't want to open up too much during that window where things are bad, but we want to be prepared as soon as they start getting better to really get kids back in school. Yeah, like you said earlier, and I know this is something I've also said to myself many times, it's really hard to, to kind of see what's going to happen um, a few months down the road when we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> My crystal ball is broken for sure, right? It, it can see about a day ahead right now. Yeah. <laughs> and even so, then, sometimes I'm surprised. Yeah, I'm always shocked. I'm always shocked by what actually happens. What precautions is ASD going to put in place to ensure the safety of their students during the pandemic? Yeah, so um, when we come back to the buildings, we'll do a lot of the same things that we have done in our sports mitigation plans when we brought kids back. Right, we will continue to um, advise people that if they are experiencing any of the symptoms that are on the COVID list, no matter how mild, that they need to stay home and not come to school. Right, um, that if they've had exposure to someone who is potentially positive for COVID nineteen, that they quarantine themselves and not come to school. Right, so the first preventative measure is just advising people on you know, not coming to school and potentially infecting others if, if they could potentially be a positive case themselves. Um, then we'll, we've got, um, you know, like I said before, we're gonna rearrange some of our classrooms to get as much space between students as possible. All students and staff will be required to wear masks. Um, we know that it's relatively safe for folks if they can stay, you know, masked and more than six feet apart it's only when you're, you've got exposure to someone for greater than 15 minutes and less, less than six feet that you're really at high risk for contracting COVID-19 from someone who might be positive and infectious at that time. 
Um, we'll, we're increasing our cleaning protocols. So our operations staff actually has had a difficult time getting a, a hydrochloric solution that's incredibly effective at killing the coronavirus. Um, that it's been difficult to order that out of the lower 48. So they actually instead ordered a machine and are now producing it in our operations facility. So rather than being dependent on a supply chain, they're actually now producing it in such great quantity, they're supplying it to other municipal entities. We're actually selling it to other folks who need it locally, right? So we're really preparing to be able to sanitize our buildings, you know, between classes, um, and then much more thoroughly every night. Um, our operations department has been busy putting down, you know, arrows and signage in our schools so that people know how do we travel? It's not gonna be just kind of anyone go wherever you wanna go like it normally was probably when you were in high school. There's gonna be much more um, kind of directional traffic. There's gonna be a emphasis on, you know, I'm thinking more at the middle and high school level now you know, between you're gonna have three classes, um, between classes, the bell rings, your job is to as quickly as possible get to your not your next class and not hang out and socialize in the hallway. There'll be some downtime when you get to your next class. So you can kind of have a mental break before, you know, the, the teacher starts instruction, right? Because everybody needs a little bit of, of a brain break, you know, as we go from one class to the next. But we're not going to have a lot of dwelling and kind of socializing in the halls because we know that will really increase the risk for students. So it'll look and feel, I think, a little bit different than, you know, normal school has felt in the past. Um, there'll be a lot of training, you know, teachers kind of, rehearsing those those safety routines to make sure everybody knows what the expectations are and what they're supposed to do. And so, um, you know, that's happening in, in our student nutrition department, it's happening with our transportation department, everybody's sort of thinking about what are the things that we need to do when we come back that might look different than they have in the past. You know, one of the things that we've done, I'll, I'll talk about some other high level stuff. We made this decision over the summer is normally in high school, a student would have six classes well, we knew some portion of the year we were probably going to be online and six classes is a lot of classes to try to tend to online. So we reduced it down to three so that if we were online, kids only had three things to manage at any one time. That also helps us when we come back to the building because kids are only mixing with three different groups during the day versus six. Right. So the number of people that they're going to have more prolonged contact with in a day is reduced as well. So that helps keep kids safe. It helps keeps it helps keep our teaching staff safer as well. Um, we've reduced the day. Right. So it's a little bit shorter. It's only going to be five and a half hours instead of a six and a half hour day. We're going to put lunch likely at the end. So for those kids who get free and reduced lunch, they'll get to grab a meal and take it home with them. For those who want to buy lunch, that'll be an option, but we're not going to take a break in the middle of the day and have everybody leave campus and run off to McDonald's and jump in cars and, you know, do that kind of mixing that we know can increase the spread um, amongst uh, teenagers. So things are going to look a little different for a while. Sure. Yeah, it's definitely a different year and we're yeah, it's everything is totally different. So of course, it's going to feel a lot different. Um, I know we've talked about this a little bit, but um, so what are some of the potential consequences of bringing students back to classrooms before it's truly safe to do so? And how is ASD working towards addressing those concerns from students and parents? 
Yeah. So, you know, one consequence, if we come back too early, is we have a whole bunch of, um, you know, cluster outbreaks and we just have to shut right back down. And that gets, I think, incredibly disruptive for families, right? Um, especially for families with younger kids, right? They're making all these plans. Okay, we can turn off childcare because school's going to be starting. Oh, school's canceled. Now we got to go back and figure out our childcare plan so that mom and dad can work if they need to. Right, so we, we want to minimize those disruptions, and that's one of the reasons why we've opted to stay online for all of first semester for secondary. Right, may not be ideal, but at least it's consistent, and people can kind of count on this is the plan for the next little bit. So the other potential consequence is that our schools really become um, the epicenter. Uh, of COVID spread in our community. And we increase that for the Anchorage area. And that puts everybody in the Anchorage municipality at greater risk. I don't know how likely that is. Um, I've read some articles. There was recently one uh, posted on NPR today that um, shows international and national research that suggesting that schools don't seem to be super spreaders. Um, maybe it's because of mitigation efforts. Maybe it's because with younger kids, they're, they're you know, not as good at spreading the virus. Um, could be a lot of different factors, but what they're finding is in communities that have opened up school and done it thoughtfully, that they haven't become those vectors for their communities. Um, in fact, it has actually proven in some areas to lower um, the spread rate because you know, kids are in an area for a large portion of their week where there are good mitigation efforts in place versus, you know, when they're dispersed out in the community and intermixing and, you know, going to different daycares and things like that, there's just, there's less kind of standardization of those mitigation efforts. And so, you know, the verdict is out on that. I've read articles that suggest both. I don't know where exactly to put, you know, my feet firmly down on that, but, you know, one potential consequence is, you know, we could, um, we could increase in the infection rates in, in Anchorage and, and we don't want to do that. And that's one of the reasons why we've held off as, you know, bringing everybody back um, as long as we have, just because don't know hundred um, percent, you know, what the answers to those questions are. So how will the Anchorage school district respond to potential Corona outbreaks at schools? Yeah, so um, we've got um, uh, matrices to respond to those situations. Right. So um, and we've already been using them. Right. We've been using them with our staff who've been returning to buildings and choosing to work um, in the buildings. We've been using them for our sports programs. So when we have an individual who has had cl uh, close contact with somebody who is a confirmed positive case, um, then we are asking that individual to quarantine for 14 days and we'll continue to do that. If we have someone who comes into, and I'm just going to use a sports program as an example, but it, this is the way it would play out in a classroom as well. If we have somebody who um, becomes symptomatic and tests positive, and we realize that in the 48 hours prior to being symptomatic, they were potentially infectious and they were around you know, their teammates for more than 15 minutes within six feet, whether they were masked or unmasked, then we'll take that entire team and quarantine them for 14 days. And we would do the same with classrooms potentially where that whole group that was potentially exposed 
we would ask to quarantine and we would encourage them to test, right? So if they, they can't test out of quarantine because we have to wait the full 14 days to see if they potentially become infectious or test positive, but we encourage them to get tests so they know themselves or if they develop symptoms to make sure that they're working with their medical provider to get the any care that they might need. If we start to have cluster outbreaks where we have multiple folks who are positive in a on a sports team or in a classroom or in a school, especially in the school, then we may look to actually shut down a school for a period of time. You know, Matt Sue has been doing this already this fall because they've been face to face. They've been taking schools offline from anywhere from 24 hours to multiple weeks, depending on, you know, how many cases they have in the school. So even once we come back face to face, there's always the potential that on an individual school basis, we may be shutting down classrooms or schools for short periods of time to respond, um, you know, based on that response matrix. And that's what we've been doing with our sports teams. And so far, I can tell you throughout the fall season, can't tell you how many individuals that we've asked to quarantine for 14 days, um, but we've quarantined as of this morning, 19 different teams for a 14 day period of time. And I think, you know, the feedback that I've gotten, at least most people would prefer for us to manage sports that way and still provide the opportunity than treat it as an all or nothing proposition, right? Either we do sports or we don't do sports. Well, if we do sports and we manage it by individual outbreaks, that seems to be um, still providing an opportunity for kids while being responsible when there's a situation versus just turning it off for everyone and saying, hey, we're not doing it right now, um, which really robs kids of some of those opportunities to participate that we know are good for their mental and physical well-being. Anchorage is still at a really high transmission risk. So will ASD continue with their real plans if the city is still in the high risk category by the time they're planning on reopening? So yeah, like I talked about before, we don't look just at high risk status, which is based on those case count numbers, the seven and 14 day average. We're looking at a whole dashboard of metrics right now. Um, so it is possible that we will bring some of our programs back online. Um, even if the municipality is in high risk. Now, if things get exponentially worse, um, that could change. Um, and it could be that at the municipal level, um, you know, our interim mayor or the assembly um, opt to put us down in some kind, you know, put us back in some kind of reset or hunker down status that would not allow us to return and implement those plans. So it'll continue to be an ongoing conversation between us developing plans and, you know, living within the municipality and, and figuring out, you know, what, what, what the municipality may be ordering folks to do. What is the Anchorage School District doing to make sure that students are staying on track academically and staying mentally and physically healthy? Yeah, Whew. That's, that's the big question right now, right? And it's hard because when you don't have that daily contact with kids, it's sometimes hard to assess how they're doing. Um, you know, we've got, that was one of the reasons why we switched from asynchronous in the spring where teachers were facilitating classes, but they didn't have, you know, they were helping kids one-on-one, -on -one. they were grading things, they were monitoring students' progress, but they didn't have a place where students reported every day where they could check in with the teacher. 
So that worked to some degree. It's about what we could pull off, you know, in a two week transition, you know, we went off to spring break and then all of a sudden COVID hit and we had to figure out how we were going to do distance learning. We didn't have a whole lot of options or experience doing that. So we learned a lot from that experience. And over the summer, we were able to develop plans where we have teachers teaching synchronous lessons four days a week with their classes. And so at least they have that ability to have that interaction with kids. Kids have that daily contact at least four days a week with their teacher where they can stay on and ask questions. Teachers can see, hey, you know, Quinn, you know, usually you're smiling every day. You know, I, I'm not seeing the smile today. Well, how are things going? And just asking some of those questions that are more relational in nature that, that, that teachers do to kind of just check in with kids and make sure they're doing well. And so we've been able with the synchronous component to uh, layer some of that back in. I don't know that it's exactly the same though as being face-to-face -face in a classroom. Um, we just wrapped up our first quarter uh, in this accelerated quarter model where kids are getting a semester's worth of credit in their quarter classes. Um, and we're looking closely at grades. Um, teachers have to report final grades by the end of the day today. So we don't have exact numbers yet, but it does look like our failure rate is gonna be higher um, in our in-school classes, right? So what we call our blended model. Um, which is online, but it's with the teachers from the school that the student attends. And our ASD virtual program that we stood up this year, um, where it was more asynchronous, the failure rate is even slightly a little bit higher. And so th that's really concerning, you know, especially for our seniors. We want to make sure that they stay on track to graduate. And so, you know, we're talking more and more about what can teachers continue to do to reach out to kids who may not be engaging with their online work. And, you know, how do we support those kids who have learning disabilities or um, our ELL students who are, you know, um, still learning English, you know, and having a difficult time navigating um, this online environment. So there's lots of conversation about how to do that. Um, nobody has a magic bullet. Um, so it's lots of different things to try to support different groups of kids. Um, I'll give you one example. Um, there is... Um, uh, both special, our special ed department and our ELL department are looking to open up some after-school tutoring opportunities where they would bring kids to school, maybe even provide transportation and food as part of that support after their classes in small groups where we know we can keep them socially distanced and do some of that face-to-face -face support that we know helps those kids be more successful. And so I think we're going to increasingly start looking at bringing kids back in small groups who need those extra levels of support. How has enrollment been affected by the pandemic and are more families going with homeschool options? Yeah, quite a few. Um, and we had a couple thousand people opt to leave the district, right? So some of them enrolled in private schools in the municipality because they were providing face-to-face -face instruction. And that's something the family really valued and wanted. Um, we had some people who chose some statewide correspondence programs. Um, we provide some of those same services through the district, but for whatever reason, some families opted to do that outside the district. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of different options in, in the educational space. And so, um, you know, families have to, to make the choice that's right for them. But our um, homeschool 
correspondent schools in the district have seen a huge increase in numbers. Um, Family Partnership, um, which is a kind of a longstanding homeschool charter program, um, usually has about 750 students enrolled and they doubled that this year. Uh, Paideia, which is an online correspondence program, has doubled their numbers as well. And so we have a lot of families who I think looking at our plan said ah, that we may be in school for a while we may be back out of school we're not sure you know we just want consistency and so they opted to go with a homeschool option for the year just so that they could plan you know their their family schedule um, around that that consistency i mean we have friends who who made that choice just because they didn't want every two weeks or every month to know that they may have to be changing their their family schedule and so we provide all those services in the district um, certainly don't fault families for making that choice if it's if it's the right one for them with all the challenges in educating students this year are there any discussions about having a do-over year or something to help bridge the educational gap Hmm, that's a great question. I don't know what, what is happening with that conversation at the elementary level, but at the secondary level, um, in terms of do over years, um, you know, we don't track grade level by ability or by credit attainment. You know, we do grade level by age. And part of that is based on the way that the state requires us to track cohorts of students. So we, we see how many students make it to graduation on the time and how many take a fifth year and how many don't make it, right? So those are all things that we have to report to the state. So rather than a do over year where we would say take all freshmen and make them repeat their freshman year, we really look at that based on individual kid and what do they need. All right, so if a kid has had a successful academic year online in ninth grade, we don't wanna make them repeat that experience if they're ready to move on. If that student has really not had a successful experience, right? They haven't passed their classes, they haven't, they're not on track to graduate because they didn't get the credits they need, and there's really some skill deficits, then we're gonna look at putting them in a class that's going to, you know, take a second pass through that material to make sure that they have the foundational knowledge they need before they move on. So they might still be a 10th grader at that point, right? They, they still get to proudly be a sophomore and wear whatever the sophomore color is at a pep assembly and you know have all the sort of honors of being a, a second year high school student, but their classes would really be tailored to whatever they still need. And we know we're going to have kids in both those buckets, those who are successful this year and ready to move on and those who weren't. And we're going to have to figure out how to fill those gaps for them academically. How confident are you in ASD's current reopening plan? Um, I'm pretty confident that, you know, we don't have that fully built out yet but we really have started the conversations about what are the pieces that we're going to need to have very specific plans around in order to be ready to receive kids at the building. And again, I'm talking secondary. Elementary has got a lot of that done because they've been planning longer than we have because they knew they were gonna be coming back sooner. Um, and I have a lot of confidence that we can do that successfully. And again, my confidence comes from what we've done with our sports programs. You know, we've been really thoughtful about developing mitigation plans 
um, that keep kids safe. Um, we've shared those with our um, colleagues in the, in the Department of Health, both at the municipal and state level and said, what are we missing here? Is there anything that we haven't thought about that we need to add to these plans to keep kids safe? And, you know, so they've given us feedback on those and we've continued to evolve those documents. And, you know, then we've trained our coaches in that we've monitored things to make sure that we don't just have a good mitigation plan, but people are actually following it, right? Because we need to have high compliance for those mitigation plans if they're good to actually work. And, um, you know, we have had cases, you know, where kids have tested positive and we know that they were infectious while they were at practice or in a competition. And we've had to quarantine those teams because of it. But to date, we haven't had any secondary transmissions based on that, that we know of, right? And we only know what we know based on kind of what people report to us. Um, but that gives me a lot of confidence that we've been doing the right things. We've kept these opportunities open. We've put the medication plans in place. We've responded using our protocols when we've had individual outbreaks and we've kept that transmission rate from, um, from growing and the virus from spreading. And so that we've been doing that now since June, right? So we had summer contact with coaches and athletes where they were just kind of doing conditioning and some scaled back camps and some of the things they normally do. And then we delayed fall sports until we get all those mitigation plans written but we have been operating our fall season now under those and been, been successful in that. So we've learned a lot, right, through that model that we can then look at our schools and say, this gives us a blueprint for how to do this successfully. And so I'm pretty confident that we're talking to the right people, we're spending time looking at the right things. And if it doesn't work, um, we've got a response plan in place for, for how to shut things back down. And we know that online learning isn't perfect and it's not ideal for everyone, but it is sort of our fallback option that we can fall back to for whatever period of time we might need to until we know that it's, it's safe to, to try again. Do you feel like the Anchorage School District is currently fulfilling its mission of preparing students for success? That's a great question. Um, I think we're doing our best. You know, um, is it exactly the same um, that we would have been doing had all this not occurred? Uh, probably not. You know, it, it, it's, but I think that's the, that's the reality. You know, nothing is the same right now. I mean, I, I, I look at our, our household and, you know, the social activities that we would do and just, it, we're, it's just not, it's different right now. And um, the reality of that is, um, is hard sometimes. And um, I think we're doing the best we can. We are trying to continue to reach out to those kids that we know need support to support them in different ways. But um, it is, it's a challenge, right? We know that not every kid is probably getting what they need right now. Um, I know we talked about a lot today, but is there anything else you'd like to add? No, we did talk about a lot of different things. Those are great questions, Quinn. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, really. What, what, what high school did you go to? I went to West. Okay. Yeah. What, what, what year did you graduate? Uh, 2018. 
All right. So you got the full graduation experience. Yeah, I did graduate uh, in person. So <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the thing I'm really hoping in the spring um, that we can bring back is some kind of face-to-face -face graduation. You know, last year we did some cool things. We got kind of inventive. It wasn't the same as the graduation ceremony in the Sullivan where you get to cross the stage and hear your name called, but we did what we could to really celebrate the heck out of seniors, but we'd like to get back to something like that. And, you know, I talked earlier about my conversation with uh, Dr. Zink, and she seemed pretty optimistic that by later spring, um, things are going to really start opening up uh, with the availability of a vaccine. And that makes me incredibly hopeful that by the end of the year, we'll be able to put some of those things back in place that really are the, the milestones for seniors that people look forward to. You know, seniors are missing a lot right now. I feel for them in particular. You know, they're missing homecoming and um, who knows about prom and, and some of those, you know, just kind of rite of passage moments that go alongside education that hopefully we can um, start to thoughtfully build back for them. Absolutely. Yeah, I know this is really a tough time for everybody. I know um, something that you said that... Um, I was thinking about was giving people a solid plan because I know that's something I keep getting really frustrated about. Um, I, I go to USC and they keep telling us that they really wanna bring us back to school and how much they wanna bring us back to school and how they're gonna do everything to bring us back to school, but it just doesn't really seem like a reality. Yeah. Yeah, times are tough, but. Yeah. Geez. <laughs> they're, tough, they're, they're interesting. Um, you know, I, 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 I ebb and flow. Sometimes I'm like, this is a really interesting professional challenge, you know, to be part of the decision-making process in these times to try to figure out how to do this responsibly. And other times it's like, oh my gosh, this has been hard. You know, I've been working 10, 12 hour days since March, and it just doesn't seem like it's, it's going to end anytime soon. And I think everybody's pretty exhausted right now. And so, Hopefully we can all uh, weather it and support each other in the community and, um, you know, people will be responsible. And, um, you know, I think if everybody does their part across the community and follows the health guidance, we can get numbers back down, we can get kids in school and we can turn those things back on that we know are really important for the youth in our community. That was at me, senior producer Quinn White speaking with ASD Director of Secondary Education, Marty Lang. You've been listening to Podcast in Place, youth stories from quarantine from Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Devin Schreckengost. Stay tuned for more stories from quarantined youth. You can find these stories at alaskateenmedia.org, where we have included resources for youth during quarantine in partnership with the State of Alaska Division of Behavioral Health. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Dena'ina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including John O'Hara, James McCoy, United Way of Anchorage, the Alaska Humanities Forum, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. But the views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of the National Endowment for the Humanities or any of our other sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. And while you're browsing the interwebs, stop by alaskateenmedia.org, 
where you can learn more about what our organization does, listen to past episodes of our podcast, or find out how to get involved. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Sam Burnitz. Thanks for listening.